Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Um, I would like to ask, out of kindness to our speaker and uh, just to increase um, our gathering feel, if those in the back would please each move up three rows, because there's lots of empty rows. If you would do that right now, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you. All the, everyone, please move up three rows if you're um, behind the first four or five. Thank you so much, that really helps. As the semester continues, uh, sometimes our attendance uh, decreases a bit, um, but this greatly helps the feel of the room. Thank you. My name is Beverly Lapp, and I um, help organize the convocation schedule in my role as core director. This morning, I'm very happy uh, that we were able to organize a convocation connected with what is called the C. Henry Smith Lecture Series. And I want to tell you a little bit about that before introducing Anne. Uh, last night, she gave the official 2017 C. Henry Smith Lecture, and today's convocation is an accompaniment to that. C. Henry Smith was an outstanding, groundbreaking Mennonite historian who taught at Goshen College from 1908 to 1913 and at Bluffton College in Ohio from 1913 to 1946. He established a trust uh, from which Goshen College benefits in a variety of ways, all of them related to peace. There is extra money um, in this trust for peace-related books and many disciplines for the library for peace-related activities, for the peace oratorical contests for students, and so on. And since 1975, one of these benefits is that the trust directors grant one award per year for peace-related research by faculty at Mennonite colleges, principally Goshen and Bluffton. This award has done much to stimulate research that might otherwise have been difficult or even impossible to accomplish. And since its introduction, the topics have been innovative and the list of lecturers distinguished. Which brings us to this year's C. Henry Smith Peace Lecturer, Anne Hostetler. As an undergraduate, Anne received her BA from Kenyon College before going on to her master's at Penn State and her PhD at University of Pennsylvania. Anne is the author of a book of poems, Empty Room with Light, and the editor of an anthology, Acapella, Mennonite Voices and Poetry. Recently, with, with Steve Nolt, she revised and updated John A. Hostetler's historic first book, this is her father, The Amish, Formerly Amish Life. Her poems and essays have appeared in numerous magazines and scholarly journals. She's professor of English um, and English department chair here at Goshen College, where she's taught literature and creative writing and courses for the core curriculum since 1998. She taught American literature at two German universities in 2010, and with Irvin Beck, she co-edits the Journal of the Center for Mennonite Writing and serves as website editor of the Center for Mennonite Writing. And if you uh, place that in a Google search, you'll, you'll find um, a really excellent resource there. Last night, Anne shared some of her research journey that she's been on this year as the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecturer with her talk, Conflict and Creativity, Shunning and its legacy in Amish and Mennonite communities. Today, she shifts to a different area of her research uh, with her presentation, The Long Journey of a First-Generation College Student from Amish Life to Anthropology. Please join me in welcoming Anne, Anne Hostetler to today's convocation.
Thank you, Bev, and um, thanks for that lovely introduction. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I'm glad you're here. You're still welcome to come up closer if you would like. Um, it gives me more of a feel of talking to people. Um, but I know um, once you're in your seat, A, you're kind of shy. Um, but I do hope um, this will be interactive. I decided to, I didn't actually have to give this Convo talk. I was given a choice. I said, do you want to speak in Convo? And I wasn't going to give my full lecture because it's too long. But I decided I did, I, especially um, because I have first-generation students in my classes. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact of a college education on my father's life. Because even though it happened a long time ago, I thought it might be relevant to you. Now, C. Henry Smith was also a first-generation um, college student. And I thought I would read you just a little bit of his writing about that um, from a, an anthology my father edited called Amish Roots. Now, my father, John A. Hostetler, is well known for his writing on the Amish. He died in 2001, so you know he's a bit of a historic expert on the Amish. He's had some really great successors, Steve Nolt and Don Crable and so forth, most of whom he knew. But um, I'm going to be talking him about him more as a person on a journey today. But first, back to see Henry Smith. Few of my relatives sympathized with me and my life ambitions. Some thought I was lazy. All were sure that I was foolish. Uncle Joe especially, who thought of values largely in terms of dollars and cents, after finding out some years later that I was earning less money with all my college preparation than his Henry, who had quit country school as soon as he was able to hold a plow handle, once told me he hoped none of his children would ever waste their lives like that. Of course, I did not tell him that I left the farm not to make more money elsewhere, but to live a more satisfactory life. And so I think um, sometimes we still struggle in this day and age. College education is expensive. Why am I doing this? Is it going to get me a better job? Um, there's polls from home and community. But um, C. Henry Smith uh, was, I think, in some ways, one of the um, inspirations for my father, who from his own Amish boyhood desired an education. And the education transformed the way he saw the world. It wasn't just about making money and getting a job. It was about understanding who he was. And I think that's what education can do for all of us. And of course, I've dedicated my life to being a teacher, so I would think that, but I, I hope you think so too. Okay, um, let's take a look here. Um, here's C. Henry Smith. One thing he did say, was also true of my dad, is that when he went back home, he tried not to be the snob that college boys were supposed to be. He tried to relate to everyone as they were, even though his interests were quite different. I think some of you don't, may not know much about the Amish and the Mennonites, so I just need to tell you a little bit about this, why this would be a very unique um, educational journey. But can I have a show of hands? How many people have some connection to Amish or Mennonites who are here? Okay. Not all of you, but enough of you that probably um, uh, some of those connections might have brought you today. The Reformation. You heard of the Reformation. It happened in Europe in the 16th century when the Bible was printed, translated, 
and um, people began to read the Bible for themselves. They were no longer satisfied with the state church, which was largely Catholic. They wanted to reform it. And um, there were numerous movements to do this. Um, some of the Protestant movements we know today were interested in replacing the Catholic Church as a state church. And then the Radical Reformation um, were those people who were interested in separating churches from the state altogether. So the descendants, uh, I mean the uh, ancestors of the Amish and Mennonites were those people, the Anabaptists. Uh, see Henry Smith, who used his education to write a, a history of the Mennonites, um, talks about these churches as independent, voluntary churches composed of adult members, sin conscious and admitted to membership by baptism upon confession of faith. In the state church, you were um, baptized as an infant. As long as you sort of nodded to the beliefs and agreed with them, you could be a member and nobody was really paying attention to how accountable you were to living out the Christian teachings. So that was the real difference with the Anabaptists. They wanted that commitment. They also felt you couldn't be committed first to the state if you were committed to the rule reign of Christ, which is often contradicts um, the state's use of violence and force and things like that. So here are some of the beliefs that are shared by the Mennonites as well as the Amish. And as you'll see, the Mennonites came first, much earlier than the Amish. Adult baptism, living the teachings of Jesus, is put forth in the Sermon on the Mount, the separation of church and state, nonviolence and non-resistance, commitment to being a member of a body of believers. And this last one, which is pretty challenging for all of us, group identity is more important than individual identity. This is a wood carving, um, woodcut of Menno Simons, who uh, was a second generation Anabaptist. He was a peaceful Anabaptist, and he helped to um, develop um, the codes that formed the church. Here's a picture of Jacob Amon. He was born 160 years later than Menno Simons. He was a new convert to the Mennonites, and he thought the Mennonites were just like getting too lax. They started attending the state churches in Switzerland, they were mixing with the world, and he said, let's go back to our roots. So the back to the roots movements are always come later than the roots, something interesting um, to think about. Um, one of the ways that he was going to keep his group pure is that he was going to practice something called um, the ban, which meant that if members came into disagreement with the church, um, they were... Um, they, the issues were addressed, and if the person didn't make the corrections, they were put in the ban or excommunicated for a certain amount of time until they were able to correct their ways and come back into the group. But the period of, um, as my husband likes to call it, the rehabilitation process, like the excommunication um, period, you are also shunned. Doesn't mean people won't talk to you, but um, you cannot serve them in your business. You cannot eat at the same table. Um, if you're married to one of them, you can't sleep with them. Um, so it makes a lot of problems. It's supposed to remind the person who doesn't conform to come back into the group and realize their dependence, which my 19-year-old said to me, Mom, that sounds like abuse to me. But um, our experience of the idea of shunning today, um, we still use the word, is um, it's pretty 
negative because social isolation of others, deliberate social isolation, is, is highly frowned upon. In fact, a recent Psychology Today article called it silent bullying. But um, the actual um, <clears throat> shunning and excommunication in the Amish had a redemptive purpose. It was supposed to allow people to have another opportunity to be part of a group that was living out um, God's practices. Uh, you notice the Mennonites and the Amish today look really, really different. And uh, that's because they practiced this excommunication differently. Mennonites did use excommunication, but they did not continue to shun people who left their church and joined another one. And the Old Order Amish, some of them do, and they still do to this day. And my grandfather was one of them, and I think that's one of the things that changed my father's life. So I was talking about that in relationship to peace last night, because how can people who care so much about peace in the world be so hard on their own members. So a Goshen professor who's now retired Bible religion said that a famous theologian Stanley Hauerwas said, I'd rather be an enemy than a friend of a Mennonite because Mennonites love their enemies, right? <laughs> We're very hard on each other. Okay, so um, this is the valley that my father grew up in, Kishikoquillis Valley in Pennsylvania, big valley. Anybody from that area, central Pennsylvania? Okay, a few of you. And if you've been there, you'll know it's gorgeous. It's very isolated between two mountain ranges, and it is a crucible for plain peoples who have lived there since the 18th century. My father, in his later studies, um, recognized 13 different uh, plain groups living in that uh, valley, um, all part of, and, 30 miles long, 17 different groups. I mean, 13 different groups at this point, 17 different groups now, so they keep dividing. So my grandfather, Joseph H. Hostetler, has lived in the valley. His people had lived there for seven generations. And here is um, the road near Coldwater Lane where the family farm was. And last year, this is a house. There were actually two houses there um, that had housed several generations of family members. And here is the barn that he built. This barn got him in a little bit of trouble, my grandfather. He was a very enterprising um, businessman, and he was a member of the Dairymen's Association. And so he got a herd of purebred cattle and brought them to the valley and built a new barn according to the latest specifications, which had a hipped roof. I could recognize it by its description. And that vent on top, also when he built it, came with a weather vane with a little rooster on it. Well, the Amish church had a problem with this, but they sort of singled out the rooster and the weather vane and said, why did you have to put that on there? And so he said, well, I'll take it off. Um, but my grandfather um, continued to practice very innovative kinds of things. He actually went to um, school by correspondence to earn a license to run a dynamo. He was the first person in that area to generate electricity from his barn. He uh, figured out a way to bring water down from the mountains to um, feed into um, the city. So he was... Um, he followed all the Amish rules, but he did not have an Amish personality. And finally, over the years, um, uh, some 
negative relationships developed between him and one or more of the ministers, and um, he was put out of the church. I won't go into it in too much detail, that was last night's talk, but it was a, quite a shock for my father, um, who was the fifth of seven children, for the family to move from the family farm in Pennsylvania um, to Kelowna, Iowa. This is my father before the move. On the right-hand side, he's four years old. Uh, that's his brother, Jake, next to him. It's the only picture of him as a child. The Amish don't take photographs. This is taken by a stranger, a friend of his uncle Jake, who was not Amish, his father's older brother, and uh, was taken in 1923, and a print of the picture was sent to my parents. So I spent a lot of time looking at this picture when I was little, because unlike my dad, I had tons of pictures. He loved to take pictures of us. Um, so in that valley, that beautiful valley, there are Martin houses, but there, is all, there are also divisions. And I picked this picture because although you cannot see many of the divisions, um, this pole makes a division in the picture, sort of symbolizing those, between people who could not conform to the particular um, rules of their church. My grandfather, always trying to figure a way around a problem, decided that um, he was going to move the family to Kelowna, Iowa, where the Amish are much more liberal in how they practice excommunication and don't shun people who go to other churches. So he bought a new farm right during the Depression. And as I drove out to Kelowna, big, beautiful, rolling prairies, hills, gorgeous place, I thought he must have felt a sense of hope going out there and new beginnings. And this was the family farmhouse. But this was not to be. My grandfather lived there for 10 years on this farm with my grandmother. He wasn't shunned until his late 40s. He already had seven children. His wife had to shun him or else not live with him. Um, so that's kind of a, a harsh thing in, in the band. And he was hoping my father, the last son at home, would take over this beautiful farm he bought. And he bought another one across the street. But my father did not want to be a farmer. He wanted an education. And when he went to Snake Hollow School down the road in Kelowna, um, he had Mennonite friends who went on to high school. He didn't get to do that. And he secretly always wanted to. In fact, he developed a series of stomach aches that were so severe, finally the doctor decided to take out his appendix. And he had the choice of doing it in the doctor's office or in the dining room table at home. So they did it at home. And it didn't cure anything. He still wanted that education very badly. So he turned down this. Um, but his, his father knew his son was hungry for education. So my dad at about age 20. And he um, really was very, he was still very Amish in his ways, even though the Amish church in Kelowna told him he could not become a member after the Pennsylvania church threatened to excommunicate the entire Iowa church if they took my grandfather in, something of a character, I imagine. Um, but they continued to go. They just didn't stay for the meal until finally they went to the Mennonite church. But my grandfather, my grandmother, they continued to dress Amish. They were very conservative. My grandfather was angry his whole life about this shunning. Um, but my father um, had other ideas. My grandfather did think, well, you know, he has a mind. Maybe we'll get some turkeys and we'll train him to be a poultry judge. So my father eagerly ordered every book he could find on turkeys and he became a licensed poultry judge. 
But this did not satisfy his quest for higher learning. So he secretly went to high school by correspondence. And then he learned about a program at Heston College that would allow him to go to college before he had the high school degree. And in 1941, in the winter, when his parents were wintering in Florida, he wrote and said, I've left the farm in good hands with a hired man, and I decided to go to Heston College. And I think the Lord led me here. So he was very excited about this, but World War II came along, and he was a Mennonite, and he was um, nonviolent, non-resistant. So for three and a half years, he was in civilian public services, which is what Mennonites did then. Now, I'm thinking about how my father already had these experiences of living in different communities that would give him different perspectives on life. So first, he is leaving the Old Order Amish community. He sees that the authority in his family doesn't get along with the authority in the church. That creates some dissonance. Then he goes to Iowa, and he ends up going to the Mennonite church. No, none of the Mennonites talk to him until he gets a car, but then they start being friendly. And then his parents start coming to the Mennonite church. So again, he's seeing different lenses and different ways of viewing the world as he moves through these experiences. Well, CPS camp was a huge eye opener for many people like my dad because you would live in Colorado or you would live in New Jersey. You might work in a mental hospital. You would work with all kinds of people from other denominations who were also pacifists. And you'd have a lot of time on your hands. So my father also uh, furthered his education by reading all of the Reformation religious writers he could. And during this time, he decided to um, write a letter to all of the Amish bishops in Pennsylvania telling them how their practice of excommunication and shunning was wrong. Four-page letter, 25 years old, had a half semester of college, um, so maybe not as diplomatic as if you had taken my expository writing class and learned about audience and so forth, but um, very, very passionate. And he was in, although the family had shunning in it, they wrote letters. This is a little box of my grandmother's letters home to her old order Amish daughter. And um, my father also saved all of his letters there in an archive now, so part of my research is reading those. And his letters show his intellectual growth as he went through his education. Um, some of his letter to the Amish bishops is reprinted in this book called Writing the Amish. And um, in this letter, that's about um, page four or so, he is very emphatically um, calling the Amish bishops out respectfully, he hopes, on his use of, on their use of shunning. Saying, Menno Simons did not mean for them to use coercion and force. That's not what Anabaptism is about. And so they should change their ways. You know how many responses he got? None. The Amish church, it's called the silent burial. Nobody speaks of it, okay? So um, one of the interesting things to me in looking through the correspondence is how after his college education, he wrote another letter to his father and said, Dad, I think you're gonna have to just make peace with this. It's not really about you. It's about the culture. He says, um, as far as I can find out, there's principally one reason why the Reno people, that was the particular Amish church he was part of, keep the ban on you. It is because you have left their church. Well, in talking this over with Joe Sharp, he felt too that this was the only reason. It would be impossible for the Reno people to keep fellowship with you and at the same time save their face. 
If they would discontinue the ban for you, then they would have to do the same for others that have left the church. They will not commit themselves to such a policy now. You asked for a reason, and that's the only reason under the sun that I can give you. Now, more important than the decisions of the strict minding preachers is your own attitude. We can do little about changing the mind of those we wish to mis who wish to mistreat or wrong us. So often the entire situation is brought to light by the quality of life of the person wronged that the evildoers will repent. So he's telling his father, you know, live the good life that you want to live because there is a group process that's happening here that's much larger than you. And it is not going to change for an individual who protests it. He's becoming a sociologist. He's starting to understand how systems work. So as, if I'm gonna go back a slide here, you'll see he went to Goshen College after um, CPS camp. He got a master's at Penn State, eventually got a PhD in rural sociology. Then he was awarded a Fulbright and went to Heidelberg, Germany. So he kept moving into these different frameworks where he developed more and more tools for understanding his past. And I think that's a real gift he left to me and, and my sisters. Uh, it was really important for him to have a liberal arts education. He wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do here, but he knew he cared about the church, he cared about theology. And he and my mother, they always talked about Mary Oyer's fine arts class that was required. And I think my dad got a D in the class, but he learned about classical music, something he had never experienced growing up, and he loved it. He was just a huge Beethoven fan his whole life. My parents had tickets to the symphony. So part of a liberal arts education is giving you something to think about for the rest of your life, and new ways of looking at the world. He also um, was on a gospel team here, with John Howard Yoder and a couple of other you know, famous Mennonites. Um, so he practiced his faith, and he also worked with Harold Bender, a famous teacher and dean here on the Mennonite Encyclopedia Project. So he got his start in scholarship here. And he also met his first wife here, a nurse, and she moved with him to Penn State. Now he had other life crises too that helped to move him through stages of adult development. One of them was the death of his first wife and child in childbirth while he was working on his master's degree. So I'm going to um, give you a very, I would not like this slide if my students gave it to me in academic voice. It's got too much writing on. But I put it up here for you just because trying to introduce you to William Perry's paradigm of college student intellectual development is way too much for this lecture. But I figured if I put um, a very brief list of the stages of development up here, you might identify with some of this. He talks about the first stage where students are just looking for the right answer. What is the right answer? Okay. And lots of people in life. That's, we, wanna, we have the right way, this is the right answer, this is how we do it. The next stage is realizing that maybe experts agree, disagree, like my father in the church, or maybe um, Anne and Beth, or um, you know, all of these, there, there's disagreement among authorities, but my job as a student is to figure out who's the best one. Okay. Um, the next stage, early multiplicity, and some of you may be here, ah, there's so many answers to all these questions, like it doesn't really matter, 28 flavors, Baskin-Robbins, or 32 flavors, or however many there are, whatever you think is right, okay? Now, this is not a good place to stop your education, but it is sort of a recognition there's more than two different ways of looking at something. So I think my father was working through these even as before he went to college, and certainly in CPS camp. 
Then there is um, contextual relativism. So good solutions are supported by reasons, all those ex-boss students out there, academic voice, right, you learn that. Um, and they are, um, some solutions are better than others, depending on the context. So students need to learn how to evaluate solutions to problems, right? Okay, I realize this is very, very abstract. I'll go through it quickly. But you have to commit yourself. So um, in the pre-commitment stage, you think there are many possible solutions, or maybe no absolute solutions, but you have to commit to one and support it. Then you commit to it, you take responsibility for it, and then finally, in the post-commitment stage, you realize this is an evolving process. Maybe I committed myself to an old model. It's not working, I need to have to give it up and go to the next. So not everybody gets to all of these stages, and especially not in your home community, especially if they're all old order Amish, right? So they may be at various parts along the way. Another thing that helps move you through stages of development, and there's another a theorist named Jerome Keegan who talks about adult development, and many people, it it's kind of parallels Perry's schema in a way. But life crises can push you from one level to the next because you have to figure out how to explain what happened to yourself. And that's also something that an education can give you. Tools for understanding things intellectually and from multiple perspectives. Okay, this is the most recent edition of my father's first book. One of the things he decided after he went through um, undergrad and his master's program is that all of the information out there in the 1940s on the Amish was awful. It was like, you know, the worst rumors that you could spread about these odd backward people. Today, the Amish have like Amish grace, we have the Amish way, we have all of this sort of almost elevation of this very interesting community that's kept its integrity as sort of a symbol of what we nostalgically think we'd like to be if only we could, but we wouldn't really want to. And, <laughs> um, but the, uh, and Steve Nolt and I uh, recently did a, a, a update on this book. We put all new pictures in it, but it's been in print continuously since 1960, which is kind of cool. But he saw these um, pamphlets on Amish bundling and Amish courtship and, you know, the closet Amish alcoholic or whatever primitive things on the turnpike when he was driving um, between um, uh, Scottsdale, Pennsylvania, the publishing house, and um, Penn State University where he was going to school. And he said, there has to be something better. So he actually, his first publication was a book called Amish Life. It's now titled The Amish. Um, but he, um, and, the, and the cover of the first edition was that picture of him and his brother as a little boy. So that is how he started his career. Get the right clicker here. Okay, these are my grandparents. They stayed Amish their whole life. Um, that little girl next to my grandpa is me, and um, that's my grandma, and that's my sister. So this picture represents in some ways this um, very many levels of Mennonite, from the most conservative to the more liberal and educated. And uh, yeah, that picture is probably over 50 years old now. But, um, and it was taken on the porch of my 
Beachy Amish aunt. Um, this is my father's probably major work, Amish Society. It was published in 1963, went through four editions. He kept working on it. So we talk about commitment and post-commitment. You commit to a point of view, post-commitment, you realize that's an evolving thing. Knowledge grows and changes. That's why you have to stay current with your field. And um, so this last edition came out in 1993, and now we have people like Steve Nolt and Donald Crable who are adding to the knowledge. But one of the things I think people really liked about my father's book is that he had this sort of poetic feel for the culture and what it could be. And very interesting that he devoted his life to reinterpreting where he came from and reinterpreting a people that had actually sort of rejected his father. Uh, this is a picture taken at my wedding. And this is my um, old order Amish aunt. She um, was the one child who stayed older Amish in the family because she got married before her parents left. And um, because my husband's grandmother was also shunned by the Amish, they were reluctant to come until we told them that we were going to have a cafeteria-style reception and they could pick the table they wanted to sit at. So they wouldn't have to offend anyone and they wouldn't have to get into any church trouble. So that's how this, this shunning lives on. But my father was never shunned. And I thought that was really important. So when he died in 2001 and in his obituary, I mentioned that his father was excommunicated from the Amish, but he never was because he could never have done his work and stayed friendly with the Amish if he had joined and then left. They only excommunicate people who have joined. So I, my Aunt Barbara, his youngest and only living sister at the time, called me up. And she just like really reamed me out for mentioning that in the obituary. And I'm like, well, I mean, it happened like 70 years ago. You know, like you couldn't have gone to teacher's training college. It's like, oh, such a shame for the family, such a shame for the family. And um, that's started me on a journey of thinking about how these excommunications can get passed down through the generations. Um, maybe not in your actual religious beliefs, but in a lot of emotions that you carry, um, which led to some of the research that I talked about last night. But I think my father's main way of handling it was through understanding and empathy. So he, did, he tried um, very hard, I think, not to carry the anger, but to understand the people as a people of integrity. He related his whole life to his parents, through letters. His father got more and more difficult as he got older, as you can imagine. He did a lot of work as a mediator um, between the Amish and the world. He was a key witness for a really important court case called Wisconsin versus Yoder, um, when the Amish were going to be forced to send their kids through 12th grade. And his testimony um, and this group called the Committee for Amish Religious Freedom defended the Amish position. Um, sometimes been taken to task for that by ex-Amish people who wish they had gone to high school, but my father went to high school eventually, so you could. But um, the idea is that high school is a socialization process that would be a threat to the Amish way of life. So I think um, it's, there's never a completely right, clear answer to complicated cultural issues, but an education is a great tool um, that help you move through them. And uh, this little kid, this is my grandson, and he actually, I think, looks a lot like my dad on that picture of him as a four-year-old Amish kid. So you would think where I'm standing today, and maybe what my grandson will do, um, we owe a lot to my father's education, and we actually owe a lot to my grandfather for being the one for taking the hits, for leaving the Amish. And with that said, 
Um, I really respect the Amish, um, and I also respect their different choices. So as you um, think about your own education, and those, I know this time of the semester you think, is it worth it? You know, it just seems so abstract. But realize that you're on a journey that people like C. Henry Smith, my dad, they just craved it and craved it for years. And it was a thirst. And they were finally able to find some tools to help them live their lives. So not only think about your major, but think about how this time is going to shape how you think about the rest of your, um, how you're going to think for the rest of your life and the friends you're going to have. Thank you.